Hello, and welcome to our online services at Scotts Hill. My name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor here. Well, we're in our sixth week of online services. Who would have ever thought this would have gone this long? But before we begin, I want to give a shout out to all those staff members who are responsible for creating online content week in and week out. It has been a lot of work. It, it, and, and all that's involved in it, most people do not see what we have to do behind the scenes. There's the scripting of every um, um, content that we're producing. There's the filming. There's the sitting behind computer screens. There's the editing of it. There's the posting it on the internet and on our websites, whether it's going to be on our website, whether it's YouTube or Facebook, whatever it is, there is a lot of work involved. But we are really committed to that because we are committed to doing everything we can to help the body of Christ to grow spiritually and deeper during this time of a crisis. And we don't know how long this crisis will last, but we are committed to excellence in the midst of this. We just ask that you would continue to take advantage of all the online content that we're providing for you. We ask that you would continue to be faithful in tuning in and listen to what God has to say to us in the midst of this crisis. And we want to encourage you to continue to support the ministries of Scotts Hill as you faithfully give during this time. We're so blessed to be able to do this week in and week out and seek new ways to minister to the body of Christ. Now, last week was a first for all of us. It was the first time that we can remember in our lifetime times that we were not allowed to have worship services on Easter Sunday. But it was also a first time for Scottsdale Baptist Church in that it was the first drive-in sunrise service that we've ever held. And it was such a wonderfully sweet time last Sunday. We had 230 cars that showed up. We had an estimate, a very conservative estimate, of 575 people who were on campus, but it was more likely well over 600. And we had a wonderful time of fellowshipping together, even though we were still quarantined, separated from one another by six feet and within our vehicles. But you can see the anticipation that has been building over the weeks, looking forward to that time when we can be back together. And we don't know when that's going to be. But as we wait with great anticipation, we can see that it'll be a sweet reunion as we get to fellowship with one another in the presence of our God. Now, as we're going through this crisis, we're going to learn some things. I'm a huge believer in that every crisis measures what we're really made of. Every crisis really measures what we truly believe about ourselves and even about God. I'm reminded of a story by Ken Davis, who is a Christian comedian. When he was in college, he says that he was given the assignment to speak on the law of the pendulum. And he met before the class and he began to explain the law of the pendulum. He says, with the law of the pendulum, an object begins at an original point, it is released, and it travels through until it reaches its peak. And then the law of gravity begins to pull it back. And then when it returns, it falls short of its original point of release. It goes back through its arc, and then it continues with each swing to fall shorter on each side, the positive and the negative side. Then he took a string and he attached it to a board with a small ball on the end of it. And he brought it to one point and he marked it, the board, with chalk. He let it go and it went through its complete 
um, length, and then he marked it again. And when it came back, he marked again, and he marked again. And with each subsequent mark, the ball was falling shorter. Then he asked the class, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And they all resounded with a, yes, we do. Then he asked the professor, do you, sir, believe in the law of the pendulum? He says, well, I most certainly do. And Ken says, well, I'm glad to hear that because we're going to do an experiment. And he had a desk set up on one side of the classroom, up against a cinder black wall, and on top of it was a chair. He asked the professor to sit on that chair with his head pressed firmly against the cinder block wall. And from the ceiling, he had a rope that was hanging on a beam. And at the end of that rope was a 50-pound weight. And he told the professor, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring that weight to the end of your nose, and I'm going to release it. It's going to travel through its full length, and then the law of gravity will pull it back, and it's going to come back towards your nose, but it will fall short from the point that I originally released it. Then he turned to the class. He said, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And they said, yes, we do. He turned to the professor. Do you believe in the law of the pendulum? He says, yes, I do. Very hesitantly. So Ken brings the weight to the end of his nose, and he releases it. And it makes its path through the room. And when it reaches its peak, it begins its journey back to its original point. But right before it gets to the professor, he jumps out of the chair, dives onto the floor, and the class erupts in laughter. Ken turns to the class and he says, Class, do you believe in the law of the pendulum? And they said, Yes, we do. And then he said, Does our professor really believe in the law of the pendulum? And they said, no, he doesn't. See, here's the point of that story. It's easy for us to say we believe in something until we have to experience maybe potential danger in the midst of that. And we're like that a lot in our lives. A crisis comes along and we say, yes, I believe in these principles, and yet it really tests the depth of our beliefs. And we can learn things about ourselves. We can even learn things about God in the midst of a crisis. We can ask the question, do we really trust him in the midst of this crisis? Do we really believe that he has our best interest in heart? Do we really believe that he's going to walk with us as we go through this difficult time? Right now, we're all going through a crisis. It's called COVID-19. Our lives have been changed. Our routines have been shifted. We have a new normal among us. For some of you, your educational goals have been changed. For some of you, your wedding plans have been changed. For some of you, your financial goals have been set aside. For some of you, your careers have ended. Some of you have lost your jobs. Some of you wonder if you're going to have a job in the next few weeks. Some of you have lost loved ones. Some of you have been going through times of discouragement, anxiety, and maybe even depression. And in the midst of a crisis, it really measures who we are. But this we know as children of God, that we can rest in the promises of God's word. Amen? We can rest in the truth that he will never leave us nor forsake us. We can rest in the truth that what the world sees as a tragedy, God sees as a triumph. We can rest in the reality that when we go to the crucible, God's plan in his heart is that that crucible, that difficulty, that trial, that virus, that struggle is going to make us something that we would not have been without it. 
And as we go through this crisis together, we need to know that God's heart is to make us stronger and greater in our relationship with him and with one another than we've ever been. We're going to start a new series today entitled God's Gift in a Crisis. It's a very encouraging series because we want to look at it from a very positive standpoint. We want to see what God gives to us as his children when we're going through a crisis and how those gifts will strengthen us and encourage us. Throughout this entire series, we're going to look at one passage of Scripture. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. So if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7 this morning, but we're going to focus on verse 7 for the next four weeks. Now, as you're turning there, let me set the scene for you. The Apostle Paul is in a crisis. Matter of fact, it's an understatement that he was in a crisis because he was in a Roman prison cell. He is awaiting execution by the notoriously wicked Nero. And Paul knows that his days are coming to an end. But Paul doesn't write about himself. He is writing this letter to Timothy, his young protege, a young man that the Apostle Paul has invested his life in. And he's writing to Timothy because Timothy needs to be encouraged. We find through the pages of Scripture that Timothy was a man who had somewhat of a timid spirit about him. He was a young man who had some insecurities with respect to his own age and his leadership. He even had some health issues. But the Apostle Paul knows that his ministry is coming to an end. And all of this is going to be handed over to young Timothy. And Timothy is going to have to have the courage to be able to lead. And Timothy is also going to be going through some severe suffering and persecution. So the Apostle Paul is writing an encouraging letter to him. And he begins by speaking to him about his fond memories of Timothy. And, but he also reminds him of the incredible gifts that God is going to give him in the midst of any difficulty and any trial. Even though this has been written 2,000 years ago, the Holy Spirit has it for you and me today. Let's begin reading this together, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He's writing to Timothy, his beloved child. Now, it's not his son, but he is his son in the faith. Because the Apostle Paul is the one who had the major influence in Timothy's life and had probably led him to faith in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is about to remind him of some truths, but he wants to talk about his fond memories first. And in verses 3 through 5, the Apostle Paul speaks of how fondly he remembers Timothy. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. 
The Apostle Paul says three times that he has a memory of him, fond memory. He remembers him in his prayers, which says Paul prays for people every single day. He says, I remember your tears, probably the tears that happened during their departure and their separation as they went different ways in ministry. And I remember your sincere faith. And it, it, it is a deep, real faith that your grandmother and your mother instilled into you at a very early age. But then in verse 6, he reminds him of something. Where he's remembering him, now he reminds Timothy of a very important truth. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He reminds Timothy of those specific Holy Spirit-given gifts to Timothy for the ministry. Now, the Apostle Paul, as an apostle, had authority and power. And that ceased with the early apostles. He lays his hands on Timothy, and Timothy receives spiritual gifts in order for the ministry. Now, that power ceased. We no longer have the power and the authority to do that. What we do today is we lay hands on people called into ministry and we acknowledge and affirm their giftedness. But, but Timothy received specific gifts here. And then he says to him, fan into flame the gifts that are within you. I love that picture. You see, he doesn't say light the gifts. The fire has already been lit by the Holy Spirit inside of Timothy. And he's been given specific gifts, but he says, fan into flame those gifts. You see, the coals are hot, but sometimes the fire dies down. And I want you to fan those into flame so that flame would go and there'd be a manifestation of the gifts in you and that you would bless other people's lives with it. Believer, the same is true of us. Every single one of us in Christ has been given at least one spiritual gift. And the Holy Spirit gives those gifts as he desires. We don't light a fire within us. He has lit that. But there are times that we need to fan into flame those spiritual gifts for the blessings of other people. Now, how do we fan into flame the gifts that God has given to us? By using them. By applying them in service, there's a manifestation of the giftedness by the Holy Spirit as we serve other people. Now, he says, these are the specific gifts. And every single believer has specific gifts that vary from one another. But then in verse 7, he says something that's totally different. He speaks about gifts that are in every believer given by the Spirit of God. And in verse 7, he puts it this way, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. I love that. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. He says God gave us. Means every single believer has been given this incredible gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Apostle Paul says that, that he's given us a spirit not of fear. For some of your translations, the word spirit may be capitalized because it refers to the Holy Spirit. For some of your translations, like the ESV, it's in the lower case, which just simply speaks of spirit. And so many people question, what is it? 
Is it just a spirit or is it the Holy Spirit? Well, it's the Holy Spirit. But this is how it is best translated. That God gave us a, the Spirit of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit operate? He does not operate in fear. The Holy Spirit operates in power. The Holy Spirit operates with the spirit of love. The Holy Spirit operates with a spirit of self-controlled. And this is what it means for us. God has given us not only the Holy Spirit who gives us uniquely different gifts that vary from one another, but he has given us the very spirit of the Spirit himself. And the spirit of the Holy Spirit is a spirit of courage. It is a spirit of power. It is a spirit of love. It is a spirit of self-control. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to look at these gifts that God has given to us, which is the spirit of the Holy Spirit. And here's how we're going to break it down in the next four weeks. The spirit of courage. Every single child of God who has the Holy Spirit is to walk in courage. The spirit of power. We are to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit walks in power. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in sober-mindedness. So the gifts that God gives to every one of us in the midst of a crisis is that we are to have the very spirit that the Holy Spirit has of courage, of power, of love, and of a sound mind. So where do we begin? Today we want to begin with the reality that we have been given the gift of the spirit of courage. Every person who's a child of God who has the Holy Spirit living within them has the spirit of courage because that's how the Holy Spirit operates. He operates in boldness. He operates in courage. He never operates in fear. And when you and I operate by fear, then we're not walking as the Holy Spirit desires us to walk. And Paul begins by saying this, for God gave us a spirit not of fear. Not of fear. Now, in other words, God has given to us, God has not given to us a spirit of fear. Now, the word fear is an interesting word, and we see it throughout the pages of Scripture that applies both to the Old Testament and to the New Testament. And when we look at the word fear, the most common word for that is the word phobos. Phobos. Now, when you use the word fear, and it replies to both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word fear can have a positive side of it and can have a negative side of it. On the positive side of it, we see fear refers to the fear of God. That means to have a reverence. That means to have a, a, an awesome reverence, a worship, a respect for God. And when I fear God with reverence and respect, then I recognize I need not fear anyone else because there's no one greater than God. And over 400 or some 490 times in Scripture, we find that we are commanded to fear God. For the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And so we're commanded to fear God in a positive way. But there's also a negative side of fear, of phobos. And in the negative side, it tells us to fear not. And when you look at that, that usually has to do with the fear of man or circumstance. It has to do with danger or dread or anxiety. And it's the kind of fear 
that is not helpful to humanity. It's the kind of fear that can paralyze you. It's the kind of fear that can weaken you. It's the kind of fear that can uh, cause a person to have anxiety and discouragement. And so we're not to have that kind of fear. That kind of fear appears nearly 500 times in Scripture. Almost 500 times the Word of God says, fear not. Now, some people will say that it appears 365 times, one for every day of the week. Some people will say that it appears 366 times, one for every day of the week, and then an extra day on leap year. But it actually appears more than that. The point is this, that we are commanded that we are not to live our lives in fear. We're not to live our lives in dread. We're not to live our lives being afraid. We're not to live our lives in anxiety. And we are to be set free from those kinds of phobias. Because a phobia is something that can absolutely enslave you and paralyze you. Now, there is a neutral kind of fear. And that neutral kind of fear is just the kind of fear that God puts in us that protects us from foolishness. In other words, I see a poisonous snake, and I have a certain fear about that poisonous snake, and I'm not going to pick that poisonous snake up because I know that it could potentially harm me. So there's a good kind of fear. And then there's the positive fear towards God. And then there's that negative fear towards men and circumstances that can enslave us. Now, you might say, okay, if we're commanded to fear God, how do we reconcile that with this passage where it says God has not given us a spirit of fear? Well, here's where the Greek language is very helpful. Because the word that the Apostle Paul uses here is only used in this letter and nowhere else. And the word there in the Greek is delia, which means timid, afraid, or cowardly. In other words, he says this, God has not given you the spirit of cowardness. God has not given you the spirit of timidity. God has not given you a frightened spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't operate with timidity. The Holy Spirit doesn't operate in cowardness. The Holy Spirit isn't frightened about anything. And so we are not to live our lives with this kind of spirit. But instead, you and I are called to live our lives in courage, with absolute biblical courage. And so the question comes, what is courage? What is biblical courage? Well, here's a really good, strong definition of biblical courage. Biblical courage is a boldness that replaces the fear of man or circumstances with the confidence of God's presence. That's biblical courage. Now here's something interesting. Biblical courage is not the absence of fear. Biblical courage isn't the absence of dangers or difficulties. Biblical courage is not the absence of maybe even discouragement. Biblical courage is the replacement of those things with the absolute confidence that God is present. And we see this through the pages of Scripture. Just as God's Word says that we are not to fear, His Word commands us that we are to be courageous. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, 
We find that God has spoken to Moses, and Moses is relaying this to the people, and he says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do you see that in there? It is the exchange of fear for man or circumstances with the absolute certainty that God is with them. Again, in Joshua chapter 1 verse 9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. There it is again. It's a beautiful picture. Biblical courage is the replacement of the fear of man or circumstances with the confidence that God is with you. That's a biblically courageous person. That's a person who walks in the spirit of the Holy Spirit in courage. That we replace our fear with the certainty that God is with us. This has been true all through the Old Testament and the New Testament. We find this to be true with David. It's because of this biblical courage that he could charge a 10-foot tall, armor-plated killing machine with five stones because he knew that the Lord who will win the battle was with him. That's why Elijah could go up against the hundreds of false prophets of Baal, knowing that his God, who is the God of fire, was going to be with him. It's the same reason that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could stand before Nebuchadnezzar and refuse to bow before his false gods, knowing full well the danger that awaited them, that they could be thrown into a fiery furnace. And they were, and yet they went through that fiery furnace knowing this, their full confidence in the presence of God and that there would be another with them in the fire. Oh, what about Esther? It is with biblical courage that she stood before her king without an invitation. And with the phrase, if I perish, I perish. But knowing that it was for such a time as this that she was sent, and the absolute certainty and confidence in the presence of God. You see, biblical courage is not the denial of danger or even fear. It is the willful choice that I replace those with a confidence that God is with me. This is a lesson that the Lord Jesus teaches his disciples. This is a lesson that they will learn over and over again, but it will not become a reality for them until after the resurrection. I love this story because it's a beautiful picture of what they were missing and what Jesus is teaching them about biblical courage. It's found in Mark's gospel, chapter 4, beginning in verse 35. Jesus has just had the busiest day of his ministry. He has been healing people. He has been uh, teaching people. And for the last several hours, he was sitting in a boat teaching the people. And now he is weary, he is tired, and he needs some social distancing from them himself. So he tells his disciples to push the boat out into the sea. And as they make their way out into the sea, we discover what begins to happen. Verse 35. 
On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. So they get into their boats and they do that. And then verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. Now they had multiple boats because one boat could not hold all of them. And then we see what happens in verse 37. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already feeling. This was a, a terrible situation for the disciples. They were professional fishermen, most of them. They understood what happens on the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Galilee was notorious for storms arising very quickly without any warning. The cool air over Mount Hermon would flow over into the warm, tropical, arid air of the Sea of Galilee, and when they would connect, there would be an instant storm. And this storm was one of those dangerous storms that began to rise up, and, and the boat is filling with water. The disciples applying the oars, they're doing everything they can to stay afloat. They're bailing the boat out, no doubt. But what is Jesus doing? Verse 38, but he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. He was in the stern asleep on the cushion. I, I love this passage because it tells me a couple of things about Jesus. Number one, we see his full humanity. He was exhausted. He was tired from ministry. And he was wiped out and he was sleeping in the boat. Secondly, we see his deity, that he was not concerned at all about the wind and the waves. <laughs> he was the creator of all those. He's the one who created the weather systems. He created all the laws of thermodynamics. He created all the laws of physics. He knew them well and he knew that this was not how he was going to die. So he was at perfect peace. This is the only time in Scripture that's ever recorded of Jesus sleeping. And it's in the most, most difficult, dangerous situation where he is asleep. And so he's sleeping. And what do the disciples do? They do what you and I would do. If we're in the midst of a storm and we're struggling and Jesus is sleeping while they're working to bail and, and try to save themselves, we might would ask the same question. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Can you imagine that? Waking Jesus up and said, don't you care that we're perishing? Look at this. We're applying the oars. We're doing everything we can to stay afloat. And you're sleeping. Do you even care about our scenario? Do you even care that we're in a dangerous situation? Do you even care that you yourself might not drown? Don't you care that we are perishing? We, we would do the same thing. Matter of fact, we do the same things a lot. When we go through difficult times and we're struggling with one thing, we tend to, to question the very love and the care of the Lord Jesus. Don't you care about me? Don't you care about my job? Don't you care about my future? Don't you care about my kids? Don't you care about my happiness? And we ask him all these questions when we're going through crises, and we use those questions to question his own goodness instead of to seek what he has for us. And that's what they're doing. And then Jesus responds. He awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. I love this. He wakes up, he stretches, 
He rebukes the wind. He speaks first to the wind to stop. And then he says to the sea, peace, be still. I want you to know what happens. It wasn't that the storm slowly dissipated and everything became calm. Jesus understood fully, well, all of the laws of weather and systems. He knew about the high pressures and the low pressures. He knew about high temperatures and low temperatures. He knew about the barometric pressure. He knew everything of that. And when he commanded, every single law obeyed him and instantly it stopped. Instantly the wind stopped. Instantly the sea calmed and everything was at peace. I sometimes wonder how Jesus turned to the disciples after he did that. Did he kind of smile at them and maybe wink at them? Maybe he just said, yeah, that's what I can do. Or maybe was it more of a sigh because of what happens next? As he turns to them, verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are you afraid? Did they have a legitimate right to be afraid? Yeah. Was there a real danger? Yes. Was there a real natural fear? Yes. It wasn't that those things should not have been recognized because any one of us would have recognized them. But he says, do you still not have faith? Faith in what? Faith in him. Faith in who he is. Faith in the reality that he is the creator of all things. He is the one who formed and fashioned all of the laws of physics. He is the one who created every single thing that they see and experience. Well, his real question was this. Guys, don't you know who's in the boat with you? Why are you afraid? The creator of all life is in the boat with you. God, the Son of God, is in the boat with you. The one who created the systems for weather is in the boat with you. The one who has created every single star has named them and knows the number of them is in the boat with you. The one who knows every detail of your life, every circumstance, every pain, every persecution that you will go through, every hair on your head is in the boat with you. Why are you afraid? And then it ends in verse 41. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? That phrase, they were afraid and filled with great fear, means that they feared with great fear. They were fearful of their fear. They had a phobia because of their phobias. And they became more afraid of Jesus than even the storm. But they didn't get it. Who was in the boat. This would be the rest of their life until after the resurrection. Peter denies Jesus three times on the night of his arrest because he's fearful. We find the disciples scatter and go into hiding when Jesus is arrested because they are fearful. 
And we find that even when Jesus is crucified, they're hiding in the darkness of a room where no one knows where they are because they're fearful. But then something happens. They see the resurrected Jesus. He appears to them. He's alive. He breathes on them and into them the Holy Spirit. Suddenly, the Holy Spirit takes up residency within these disciples, and the Spirit of the Holy Spirit begins to manifest itself in their lives. And they really came to understand the difference when it comes to biblical courage. They began to, ex to, to, to trade their fear of man and circumstances for the absolute confidence that God is with them. And we see this for the rest of their life. They're no longer timid. They're no longer afraid. They're no longer cowardly. From this point on, every crisis, every persecution, everything they go through is met with biblical courage. They are now walking in the spirit of the Holy Spirit in courage. We find this in Acts chapter 4 where Peter and John had been preaching. And Peter and John had brought about some healing. And as a result of that, they were arrested. They were thrown into a prison cell. They were mistreated. And they were brought before the religious leaders. And the religious leaders began to question him. Under whose authority are you doing these things? And they tell them. And then they say, it was you who crucified the Son of God. It was you who hung him on a cross. And in all boldness, they stand before these religious leaders unafraid. And what is the response of the religious leaders? Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. Then it says this. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That they had been with Jesus. And they recognized that Jesus was with them. Their lives were never the same. Because of the Holy Spirit who is within them. He gave them specific gifts. But He gave them the Spirit of the Holy Spirit's courage in all that they would face. Why? Because it goes back to the fact that biblical courage is boldness that replaces the fear of man or circumstances with the confidence of God's presence. That's what biblical courage is. The question is, how do you and I walk in biblical courage? How do we walk with this kind of courage? Let me just give you three things in closing. Here's the first truth that we need to know. We need to remember who is in the boat with us. Who's in the boat with you, believer? No one less than the Son of God, the omnipotent creator of the universe, is with you in your crisis. He never leaves you. It doesn't matter what you're going through. If it's a loss of a job, if it's a loss of a loved one, if it's going through illness, 
if it's going through a broken heart, if it's going through anything that we struggle with, He is in the boat with you. He is the one that can calm every storm with one word. He is the one that can bring peace because He is the Prince of Peace. He is in the boat with you and He never leaves you. So no matter what you're going through in these days, recognize you never go through them alone. That there He is in perfect peace. His presence with you. Here's the second truth we need to remember. We need to have greater faith in the power of Jesus than in the power of the storm. You see, the disciples had a great confidence that that storm is destructive, but they had less confidence that their Savior could deliver them. And many times we do the same. We look at the storm and we see how devastating it is. We begin to look at the negative effects of it and how it can impact me and my kids and my future. And we forget that the one in the boat with us controls the storm. He is over the storm. And our faith in Jesus to deliver needs to be greater than the destructive nature of any storm in our life. doesn't matter what we're going through. Is my confidence greater in Him? Or in the world? That's why John writes, Greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. He is the controller of all storms. Now here's the thing we need to remember. Sometimes Jesus removes the storm. Sometimes Jesus empowers me in the midst of that storm. And sometimes he doesn't remove the storm. But what he does, he removes the fear as I go through that storm. And so we need to know that he's greater than the storm. Here's the third truth. We need to wait patiently on Jesus as we go through a storm. Wait patiently on him. See, the disciples were concerned that Jesus was asleep. And as they were going through the greatest storm of their life, their question was this, how can he sleep in the midst of this? You see, we assume that when a person is sleeping, they don't know what's going on. They're not aware of the circumstances. And they may not even care. And sometimes when we go through a storm and it seems to be dragging on, we ask, does the Lord even care? Well, certainly he cares about you, believer. He died for you. It is insane to think that the one who died for you to give us everything in life and godliness would withhold from us the very grace we need in a storm. And sometimes we become impatient and we wonder if he even hears us. He's not asleep. But he is allowing that storm to rage and to run its full course until he completes in us the very thing that he wants to build. And so we walk with biblical courage. I trade my fear for the confidence that he is with me because he is in my boat 
He is greater than any storm. And He always has my interest at heart. So as we go through this crisis, may we walk with courage that there's nothing to fear because our God is with us. And it doesn't mean that we would necessarily be delivered from danger or even struggle. But no matter what happens, God is with me in the midst of every bit of it. So believer, trust in Him. Walk in the courage of the Spirit of God who is in you. And if you're not a child of God, then I want to invite you today to consider surrendering your life to Christ. He's the only one who died for you. He's the only one who rose from the dead. He's the only one who can give you what you need, and that is a relationship with the Father. That is forgiveness of your sins. That is a new life in Christ. That is the power to overcome sin and the courage to walk through any difficulty in life through the power of the Holy Spirit who begins to reside in you. As we go through these days, may we do it with courage because there's another in the boat. There's another in the fire. There was another on the cross. And there's another who walks with you no matter where you go. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we need not fear anything because of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. And as we walk in the Spirit of the Holy Spirit, may we walk in courage and absolute confidence that you are with us and you will never leave us. When we waver in this life, you are with us. When we experience victory, you are with us. Because you are with us in the fire and in all crises of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.